Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. My sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel grew, uh, continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Continuing in Luke 2, verse 41 through 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did not you know that I must be in my father's house? And they, and they did not understand the saying and that he had spoken to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. At the beginning of today's message, I want to emphasize again the importance of seeing children in the Bible That is, in covenant history, God uses children, he utilizes children in a very important and special way, and that utilization is not one that's done in, it's not just a token utilization. God does not just use children to say that he is doing something important or doing something special or showing how the folly of man cannot achieve the wisdom of God, but rather he does it in order to point to a coming child, the child that we believe came at Christmas, Jesus Christ, his son. And so today we're going to look at how Samuel and this passage in Luke are parallel. There, there is an intentional parallelism between the two passages. And so after looking at this idea of God using children in his covenants, that is, he promises and brings about his covenants through the giving of children, then we're going to look at Samuel's lineage and service. Today we read 1 Samuel 2, and we didn't really cover any of 1 Samuel 1. I'm going to give you a little bit of a context to where this reading takes place and what's going on in Israel at the time, specifically with Samuel's parents and the priesthood. And then we're going to begin to look at what Samuel does as being a young uh, priest in training uh, in the midst of Eli and Eli's wicked sons. 
then we're going to look at how this is all a foreshadowing of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, this, again, is our first Sunday in Christmas. We're going to have another Sunday in Christmas. And so at first, this might sound like not really a Christmassy message, but actually this is deeply tied to the coming of our Lord in human flesh and his life. Not just his birth or the events that surround his birth, but also how our Lord began to walk as a faithful law-keeping Hebrew, one who was born under the law, according to Paul, in order that we who were trapped under the law, unable to do it, might be set free. Paul uses the language of jail and deliverance from jail or those who are prisoners to the law. And Paul upholds the, the glory of the law, saying that it's not the, the law's fault but rather it's sin in us which prevent us from doing the law. And so Jesus Christ here today will be shown as one who does the law, he keeps the law, both the negative and positive aspects of the law for you. It's not alone that uh, the gospel is not salvation by the forgiveness of sins alone, but it is also an imputation or a dispensing of righteousness that is the righteousness of Christ by the perspective of God to your heart. And that is what the gospel includes. It includes forgiveness and a righteousness that is not yours, that is given to you. This doctrine is so neglected in the church, I I believe neglected to the point of abuse, where much of what I'm going to say to you today may sound like something you've never heard before, uh, but actually is included in the original core of the gospel. It's not divorced from uh, forgiveness. It's not antecedent to or precedent to. It is actually one and the same. And we're going to see how it could not be anything other than that. The law, as we'll look at in a few minutes, contains both prohibitions and commands. That is, do not do this and do this. And so, therefore, the gospel must include both the forgiveness for the things which we have done, which we ought not to do, and also a righteousness for the doing of those things which we could never do. And even with, even with the sanctification of the Spirit. The, the, and so to understand the doing of the law, not just as those things which we must not do, but also those things which we must do. I believe the reason why this is so neglected is because most of our gospel presentations, most of our gospel, gospel emphasis is usually reactionary against legalism. And legalism is a set of do nots, right? The legalism is, of course, not it has some overlap with God's law, but it is not uh, whatever legalism you adopt, uh, it differs from culture to culture. Whatever legalism you adopt, it does not have usually an emphasis on you need to do these things. It rather is a prohibition list. It's a do not do these things. And so we are so focused on the negative aspects of God's law, the prohibitions, that we also forget the commands to keep God's law in a positive way, that is, things we have to do. And I want to show you how what Christ did in his life and ministry, the perfect life, was not just so that he could be an atonement which paid for your sins, but also he has a righteousness which is given to you in the gospel. We're going to look at that as the culmination or the the unfolding fulfillment of this allegory of both Eli and Eli's sons. And so with that in mind, we'll see the glory of Jesus Christ in Christmas. The greatest gift in Christmas is not a gift of forgiveness of sins alone. It is also a righteousness which is given to you, a righteousness which is not yours. Theologians talk about it as an alien righteousness. 
Now, this is not talking about a UFO thing. Alien, that is foreign to you. It's a righteousness which does not come from your works of the law, but rather from the righteousness that is Christ and by faith is given to you. This is a major aspect of the gospel, and I'm so excited to be able to focus in on these passages with you. So let's get started. Throughout all of scripture, God's covenants always include the promise of a child. Now, at first, this may not seem that uh, apparent to you. It sometimes is not included in the very giving of the covenant, but rather it comes a little bit before or a little bit after that covenant. For example, Adam and Eve, when they are deceived by the serpent in the garden, God, in the cursing of Adam and in the cursing of Eve, God gives a promise. We know this to be the proto-evangelion or the gospel in prototypical or prototype form. The gospel veiled in Genesis 3.15 says to Eve that from your seed will come one who is going to crush the serpent's head. God says that the serpent will bite or bruise this seed on the heel, but he will crush him on the head. You see, this is a coming together. There's a confrontation between the seed and the serpent, and Eve is promised this seed. I saw a wonderful picture on Instagram. I don't spend a lot of time on Instagram, but it's it's fascinating. I, I encourage you to look it up later. But it was shared by a gentleman in the ARC, a pastor of uh, Scum of the Earth Church in Denver, and it was captioned, Merry Christmas, comma, Eve. As in, you know, Christmas Eve is something we always remember. And, and the picture was a, uh, it was a Hiberno-Saxon uh, style. It's a very beautiful picture. Um, it's not, I don't think it's very ancient, but it's simply Eve uh, with her hand on the womb of Mary. And it's kind of a, it's obviously not a, a photograph. It's, it's, a, it's an image to convey uh, a spiritual reality. And Mary is uh, standing there smiling at Eve, and Eve has uh, got this wonderful somewhat smile, somewhat sadness in a weeping because she recognizes it, it, the promised seed is finally here. This is the one that was promised long ago in the cursing and the subjugation of the world. And so early on in God's covenants, that is early on in the manifestation of his promises, he always promises a child or one who will come. When the whole world was corrupted in the early parts of Genesis, and it says that all the thoughts of man's heart were always bent on evil, imagine that, uh, very similar to today, but, but it's hard for us to even begin to enter into that because we live in a world that has been so radically influenced by the gospel for millennia that this is an amazing scenario. God raises up Noah, and it says before this, uh, Noah's father named him Noah because he was one to bring us relief from our labors, from our work. He will bring us, finally, this one will bring us some rest. And of course, Hebrews talks about the rest of Christ being the fulfillment. After promising Abraham to bless every family, we talked about this last week, how God, the irony of God, God chooses two people who have no children and says to them, through you, all the families will be blessed. Uh, He promises to bring about a seed, an offspring. Of course, Paul in Galatians 2 and 3 identifies that seed as Christ, but here God is promising a real physical child, not Christ, beforehand to be the covenant reception of uh, or the, the faithful reception of the covenant, and that is Isaac. When God brings Israel out of Egypt beforehand, he prepares a child named Moses, and this child he raises up to be a deliverer, a judge of Egypt and a deliverer 
of Israel. And so God always moves redemptive history forward by the promising of and the giving of children. Children are not just another normal aspect of the world. They are special in God's eyes. When God opens the barren womb in scripture, he is showing that he brings forth a child in impossible situations. And this is what the root of Jesse and the offspring of David theme includes. And we've looked at this in previous years, how all the kings that come after David always turn away from Yahweh. Or at the very least, they have a very small zealous reform that they bring on the spiritual condition of Israel. But then at the end of their life, that reform either fades or their immediate descendant or their immediate descendant turn away again from Yahweh, proving that there's no life in the root of Jesse itself. It's not that Jesse is honored. It's not that David is honored, but rather that God chooses David to bring forth a king. This root looks dead. It's kind of like the plants that I have around my fence. Every year, I cut all the shoots away from the root of the plant, and it's in between the fence lines, so I haven't taken the time to really dig it out. But guess what happens every single year? A green shoot comes off of that base of the root, and it looks like I've pruned everything away. That's what the imagery here is of this root of David, or root of Jesse, uh, uh, symbol is that God is identifying that all the shoots of this root are ready to be taken away and thrown into the fire. But God still, although this root has not produced anything with life, anything that's viable, he will bring about life from it. This is the exact same imagery given to Aaron. When Aaron is chosen by God, all the elders bring their staves, and God says to put the staves near the Ark of the Covenant, and the next day, Aaron's staff had actually budded. It had actually sent forth new tiny, um, if you don't, if, if you only think bud is a beer, then uh, I pity, I pity the fool. Uh, buds are little tiny new shoots from a branch or from a stem. And Aaron's staff, if you remember, had been used in the destruction of Egypt, when Moses and Aaron have this battle against the Egyptian magicians, they cast down their staves. Their staves become serpents. The serpents of Moses and Aaron swallow the serpents of Egypt, of their magicians, and then he takes it up again. This is God saying that he can do whatever he wants and that he is more powerful than the God of the Egyptians. Likewise, same with Aaron's staff. God chooses a staff to cause to bud And so also here we see this imagery over and over again. There's no life in Israel, and God is going to bring forth life. He's going to do a miracle. He's going to bring her from death and into life by the promise of Jesus Christ. And so each time God does this, he points forward to a day when he will open the womb of a virgin and realize that promised seed. That promised seed will come. And so we join up with the story of Samuel. That's the covenant context for bringing forth a child from a barren womb. What does that child mean? It means there's no life in Israel, and it means that God is able to do whatever he pleases. And here we see this exactly take place in the story of Samuel. Samuel's born to parents, Hannah and Elkanah, who cannot have children. Now, Elkanah had two wives. He had a wife named uh, Penna which, or Penina, which I don't really know the, the meaning of that name, but she was gloating in her, uh, in her children. She would oppress Hannah in such a way as to uh, condemn her, or make her 
her countenance to fall. She was uh, over and over again shamed at the fact that she had no children. Of course, today, we're so indifferent to children that having no children actually for most people is just kind of a, that's just their lifestyle choice. They never consider the actual barrenness of a woman to be something that is, uh, at at a society level, something that uh, is somewhat sad. And so it's very hard for us on an emotional level to feel what's going on with Hannah. But Hannah identifies the, the lack of children as the ending of her fortune, the ending of her future. She, she sees the purpose of God, the way that Hebrew families were to raise their children, the, the deep importance of the uh, passing on the faith to the children, passing on the law to the children, uh, as it's told in the law, that she sees this as an ending of her life, essentially. She has got no future when it comes to children. Of course, in that day, they don't have 401ks and Roth IRAs and non-Roth IRAs and 529 plans and all these things, children were their future, essentially. At some point, Hannah will be too old to work, and she will be taken care of by her children. Uh, And so not having children, this is a deeply concerning aspect to Hannah. She prays to the Lord, and she is filled with the Spirit. And if you look at 1 Samuel 1, we don't have time to look at it in detail today. She actually is praying with her lips moving, but praying in her heart. And Eli considers her to be drunk. And uh, I think this is a unique foreshadowing of what takes place in the giving of the Spirit. Clearly, the writer of 1 Samuel is intending to set up an understanding in the reader that Hannah is filled with the Spirit. She is praying according to the will of God. And so Hannah prays, and Eli takes notice. But when she prays, she makes a vow to the Lord. She says, if, the Lord, if you will give me a child, or if you will give, give me children, I will dedicate the child to you, and he will be given over to your service. And so Hannah makes what's called a Nazarite vow. That is, her child is dedicated to the service of the Lord, and he will be a manifestation, a literal living prophet of the lack of fulfillment of God's covenants. That is, the Nazarite vow in, his, in the way that he lives, he testifies to the necessity for Israel to stay close to God and to be called back to God. He is one who will be devoted to the Lord. He is dedicated wholly, not just as a priest, but of the priests, even one who is even more dedicated as a priest. And so he comes from a priestly family and is dedicated as a Nazarite. The clear indication is Samuel is going to be for God not for himself. So when Hannah's womb is open, she takes Samuel up to the tabernacle and lifts up a prayer of God's faithfulness. We see this at the beginning of 1 Samuel 2. Hannah prays and lifts up a song, and this prayer is very important for us to see as we begin to think of our lives biblically. This prayer is not about Uh, the words contained in it are not about the details of how he opened her womb, but rather she, by the Spirit of God, sees the coming forth of Samuel as a prophetic victory that Yahweh is bringing about for his people. We see this at verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Hannah is prophesying that this is going to take place because of Samuel's birth. If you were here on Christmas Eve, this is what we began to see. In the birth of Christ, the victory is so strong and so sure that it works backwards from the cross into the birth of Christ so as to show us that the very birth of Jesus 
is the beginning of God's victory. Here, the same thing is happening. Hannah is testifying and prophesying that because of Samuel, God will bring about judgment against the wickedness of the adversaries of Israel and also cause their foundations to be set forth or to be sure. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of his earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, what I think is beautiful here is at this time, there are no kings in Israel. There are rulers of clans. There are rulers of tribes. There are elders of every city, but there are no kings. And so Hannah, by the spirit of God, is looking forward to moments in Samuel's life and, of course, ultimately to the life of Christ in which Samuel will be the instrument to anoint the kings of Israel. Hannah, by the spirit of God, sees the victory that Yahweh is bringing against the evil in their land and is able to see the particulars of how it will come about. Samuel will be an instrument of righteousness to God. And so as Samuel grows up as this Nazarite, as this priest in the house of God, he is supposed to help Israel maintain her faithful worship of Yahweh. And so Samuel's birth then becomes just the blessing, or just the beginning of the blessing of God on not just Hannah, but also Israel. After Samuel's born, of course, Hannah then has more children, and she uh, is greatly blessed. And so although he's just a young man at this time, he's very small, he begins to be one who lives in the tabernacle. I think this is a very beautiful paradigm or beautiful image to see about Samuel. Samuel was devoted to the Lord as a priest. The priests were supposed to camp near the tabernacle, but uh, Samuel actually is one who's living in the high priest's house in, in earshot down the hallway, as we see in 1 Samuel 3. And so Samuel is exactly like Joshua, one who will deliver his people from their sins, one who will be the their savior. Samuel lives in the tabernacle just like Joshua lived in the tabernacle. It says in Exodus 33 that Moses, whenever he would wish to come to meet with Yahweh, he would pitch a tent, he would go into the tent and commune with God, and then he would leave. And then it says, but Joshua maintained or stayed at the tent and lived in the presence of God. This is what is shown forth by the showbread, which lives in the temple. It stays before the presence of God and is filled with the glory of God and soaks up, if you will, like a a sponge soaks up water or a piece of bread soaks up a sauce. It is infused with the presence of God. This is how Joshua and therefore Samuel are intending to live their lives before Yahweh, dedicated to Yahweh, and used by Yahweh to bring about righteousness in his people. And so Samuel's life is a very testimony to the faithfulness of God. Verse 21, indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. She conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. He grows up in an atmosphere and a culture of being near to God, being holy to the Lord. And so here we join up with Eli and his two sons, just like uh, Elkanah had two wives. Eli here has two sons, and these two sons are actually wicked men. Here we see the contrast between Samuel and the sons of Eli. Although Hannah was merely the wife of a priest who had a righteous son, Eli, who was a priest himself, his children uh, turn out to be rotten eggs. These two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, profane the worship of Yahweh. It says that they would steal from, literally take from the offerings that were devoted to, to the Lord, the meat which was to be for their portion. They would take the whole cut. 
They were supposed to be able to put a fork into the meat as it's there giving, being offered to the Lord and take some. This is how the Levites are fed, literally. They're literally fed by the offerings of the people of God to God. And it says here that they would actually take the offering by force. Instead of giving most of it to Yahweh and taking a small portion for what they need, they would take the whole thing and then consume it. They're stealing from God, and they're profaning his worship. They're not treating him as holy. And so Eli begins to hear what's going on. There's a rumor that spreads throughout Israel. And so not only are they stealing from uh, Yahweh, but they also begin to engage in temple prostitution at the doors of the tabernacle. They begin to, to uh, seduce and, and cause to lie, lie with these women who were there to devote themselves either for a small short time or maybe perhaps they were like Nazarites, like Samuel, who were devoted to Yahweh's service. They are corrupting not only the tabernacle and not only the offerings, but also the women who are there at the tabernacle. And Eli hears a report and says it's happening to all Israel. See, this is true, of course, whether it affects every Israelite individually because it's happening at the tabernacle. It's happening at the focus of the worship of Yahweh in the nation. And so Israel being represented by the tabernacle, with them corrupting the tabernacle, that corruption flows into the entire nation. Verse 22 of Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing that all his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. It's Eli's job to maintain the right worship of Yahweh. He's the priest over the tabernacle. He's in charge. And so he warns his sons, he says, No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. But Eli's rebuke does not go far enough. Eli was right to rebuke his sons, but he should have removed them from the priesthood altogether. Leviticus 21 and 22 gives prohibitions against certain behaviors of priests. And God does not proscribe in those chapters uh, or prescribe in those chapters anything to be done. It, by implication, of course, their priesthood will end. And so whether like Nadab and Abihu before them, they are consumed by fire, or whether they're simply set aside from the priesthood and disqualified, they have to be removed from the presence of Yahweh. Yahweh is holy, and he will not permit false worship forever. Eli warns his sons and he warns them as such in verse 25, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Look at how it says to put them to death. Here, this pronoun is expanded, of course, to include Eli. Eli will ultimately be judged because of his wickedness in not removing the wickedness of his sons. Eli's sons do things they should not do, but Eli is, doing, is not doing the thing that he should do. And here we see that even in the text itself, with Eli and with Eli's sons, there's an allegorical implication that the law has negative proscriptions and positive commands or things that should be done, prescriptions. At this very same time, while God is shaming those who are wicked, he's also raising up Samuel. We see this great shift going on in the first few chapters of Samuel. God is going to bring about a confrontation with evil 
Now, uh, in verse 26, it says, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. If you were listening at all during the reading, this may sound familiar. And here is where we get to Jesus. Just as Hannah is barren before Samuel, so also Mary, by the virtue of her virginity, cannot have children. It's literally impossible. For any of you who know anything about uh, at least a hopefully third or fourth grade biology class, they at least explain that it takes a man and a woman, hopefully, at that age. Uh, It's literally impossible for Mary to uh, conceive. She's not barren in a sense that she's tried and failed, but rather she's barren in a metaphorical sense, or rather that her womb has not been visited by the grace of God in a child. And so when Hannah gives prayer to, uh, to Yahweh, thanking for the birth of Samuel. Also, Mary does the exact same thing. Hannah celebrates it as the vindication of Yahweh and the establishment of his covenants and the establishment of righteousness in Israel, not just a theoretical righteousness, but a bringing about of real righteousness. So also, Mary offers up a prayer to God, a song, the Magnificat, which is giving thanks to the Lord. And Mary actually identifies it as fulfilling the covenant to Abraham. She's not saying that this is just joy to the world in an abstract way, peace to all the nations. She's saying that the birth of Christ is peace to Israel, is the fulfillment to the promises given to Abraham. And so the parallels between Samuel's birth and Christ's birth are not coincidental. They're intentional. God is weaving history, weaving covenant history in such a way as to say something. He wishes to indicate to us some important things, and Luke sees this and uses it in an intentional way. Luke, being aided by the Holy Spirit, uses 1 Samuel 2 and intentionally calls our attention to invoke a parallelism. He's wanting to say what's going on then is going on now in the nation of Israel. As in Samuel's days, the priests of Israel in Jesus' days have been corrupted. They've become absolutely corrupted. I was doing some reading last night about the Pharisees and Sadducees, and it's a little far afield for today, but they were both deeply influential in the Sanhedrin or the governing class of the temple in Jesus' day, and they were political compromisers, very similar with what you see going on in Congress, where they make deals and they they schedule uh, meetings with with. Uh, people in the nation to curry favor or to receive uh, favors in exchange for writing of laws or removing of laws. And both the Pharisees and the Sadducees had become so divorced from the life of the people that they were of almost no actual repute. They, they didn't have, although they wield an influence, they were not beneficial. And so here we see this as a corruption of the priest class. Like Eli, they've become blind and unable to hear the voice of God. In 1 Samuel 3, when Eli is living with with Samuel, Samuel begins to hear from the Lord. And over and over again, Samuel hears from the Lord. He hears from the Lord and thinks it's Eli calling to him. Eli was somewhat of a surrogate father figure, and Samuel is beginning to hear the voice of his father, the heavenly father. And so Samuel time and again comes to Eli and then hears absolutely nothing from Eli. Eli says, I don't know what's going on. I didn't hear anything. And then Eli tells Samuel over and over again, it must be the Lord. Eli cannot hear, but Samuel can. 
And through the voice of the Lord, Samuel hears the warning of judgment against Eli. He then tells Eli what's going to happen. And Eli simply accepts it, that there's going to be a judgment. Eli doesn't attempt to repent. Not only is he deaf to the Lord's voice, but also we, show, we see in 1 Samuel 3 that it says his eyes were dim. And he's also calloused. He hears a warning of judgment and does nothing about it. He just says, surely this is the voice of the Lord. Okay, sarah, sarah. Whatever will be, will be. When you consider what happened with Jonah and Nineveh, where Jonah prophesies judgment saying, Nineveh is ended, everything's destroyed, everything is ruined, Don't, there won't be any possible relenting from God's judgment. All of Nineveh, the king of Nineveh says, no one in the country or in the city will drink anything, including the animals. They proclaim a fast immediately, saying that they've sinned against the Lord. These are those who don't know their right from their left. And yet, we see the repentance of God, which leads to grace. Here, Eli shows none of the grace of God operating in his life. Eli is a shadow of the darkness that comes on Israel. When we sing, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light, the great prophecy from Isaiah concerning the birth of Christ, we all think that some sort of metaphorical, there was just a general darkness on the world. But there's a darkness on Israel, the ones who were supposed to be light bearers to the nations. They themselves have become dark. Like Eli's sons, the people of Jesus' day, the religious leaders, also oppressed the people. The sins that Eli's sons, were, which were done to all the people, affected the entire nation. So also the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, their ruling over the spiritual life of Israel was, it was tyrannical. It was done in such a way as to oppress people. Jesus at one point says that they confer upon the people burdens that are too hard to bear, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger. Jesus is saying, I come as one who is a burden breaker, and you all are just interested in laying more things on their backs. Here we see that this is an intentional parallelism. Luke is trying to get our uh, attention and point us to this. And so as a result, the people of Israel are like sheep without a shepherd. Not only is their priesthood defiled, but Yahweh will not accept their offerings. They cannot atone for their sin. Their priesthood is corrupted. It's become cut off. Yahweh wants nothing to do with it. And so Jesus, by the writing of Luke, by this parallelism, is identified as a child who will live before Yahweh in righteousness. One who will not only break burdens, but he will also restore a righteousness. His obedience not only answers the problem of Israel's corrupted priesthood, but his righteousness also answers the larger reality of the active obedience in the demands of the law. We think mostly in terms, I said this earlier, it was alluding to, and now we're here. We mostly terms, think in terms of things we should not do, and we very often neglect things that we should do. So Christ not only offers us forgiveness, but he himself gives us a righteousness which is for the performing of, uh, of the law. First, we see by the righteousness of his parents, Christ observes the Passover. It's actually the case that God commands the Israelites to observe the Passover. Children who do not observe the Passover, families who do not observe the Passover, are in violation of God's clear command in the establishment that he gave the nations. This isn't just a cultural feast like 
we think of maybe July 4th or Memorial Day, which are touchstones of remembering a unique cultural identity that we share as Americans in the founding of our country and various wars that have ended. God says concerning the Passover that this is their national identity, and it also is to call them to remember him and how their identity is founded in his deliverance. They're not a nation which has established itself, but rather they're a nation who's received their identity from Yahweh's delivering them out of Egypt. And this is what they were to remember in the Passover. And so not keeping the Passover is essentially breaking the law of God and violating God's commandments. Luke 2, 41 and 42 say, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Now, this custom is not just the custom of the land, but it's also the custom of Mary and Joseph. They were behaving or living in righteousness before God. Adding to this heritage, Christ immediately enters into a faithful obedience. It is not that Christ had a time in which he was not faithful and then was faithful. In his early days, he was faithful by way of his parents. Even from a young age, Jesus is actively engaging the work of debating with these teachers of Israel, those who profess to have wisdom and to be leaders of Israel. And he begins to engage them, pointing forward to a time where there will be a great war in the spirit that is in the land of Israel between Egypt, uh, between uh, Israel and, and, the, and Jesus Christ. The teachers of Israel will seek to destroy Jesus. And Jesus, of course, is not only coming to confront them, but also to bring a judgment and also, at the same time, to bring a way of escape. As soon as Jesus is able and is ready, he is actively obeying. Verse 46, And three days after, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. I don't know about you. I don't know of any industry that has ever survived uh, very long that is able to be stumped or amazed or shown to be uh, foolish or lacking understanding, where a 12-year-old is made manifest or shows up on the scene and then is smarter than all of them. We see this from time to time in the, in the various industries and cultures of men. You'll see a piano player at three, or uh, every once in a while on Chinese television, you see these things on Facebook where this like four-year-old plays guitar better than you know anyone living right now. And uh, surely these, these children are talented, of course, but they're not talented in this realm, in this scheme. Jesus is not just doing something that could be achieved by human wisdom. He's doing something, he's showing the emptiness of their theologies based on his relationship to God. That is, his nearness to God, his reading of the scriptures, growing up as a young boy, learning and being engaged in the scriptures and learning them like an Israelite should. Here, Jesus is not just saying that he is uh, going to set up a debate or, or a confrontation later, but he's also identifying himself as the true Israelite. This is what Israel was supposed to be doing. And so Jesus's life at the very beginning is not one of disrespect or disobedience, but rather respect and obedience. It seems to our ears like Jesus should deserve a whooping here, right? He ran away from his parents. Or rather, he stayed behind and he didn't immediately go with them. He does this for a particular reason, namely to call attention to what's going to happen in the future in his debates with the Pharisees and Sadducees. But here we see that as soon as the point is made, 
Christ returns with his parents. He responds to them in respect and submission. And the glory that we see at Christmas in God humbling himself and taking on the form of a man is re-highlighted at this moment in the life of Jesus Christ because he submits to parents who he made. Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Colossians 1, through whom the worlds were made. Not only did he partake in the creation, but he himself is imaged forth as Adam receives the image of God. And Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, as a human boy, submits to the instruction and leading of human parents. How humble our Lord is in his coming. This is why this is such a wonderful Christmas passage, because it re-emphasizes the humility of Jesus Christ in taking on flesh. He is beautiful in his obedience. It's not a stubborn obedience. It's not a literal obedience. It's a wonderful, humble, uh, gracious obedience that Jesus enters into. And he does it in a way that inspires awe. Even in his obedience on, at a human level to human parents, He inspires awe. He is showing forth the glory of his father to his parents through this moment. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, this is not a disrespectful answer, but rather an answer which is gracious. And look at what it achieves in the next few verses. 49, he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Father's house is an appropriate translation, but also included in house is things or realm. Uh, It's hard to convey in English, but what Jesus is literally saying in the Aramaic is, did you not know that I had to be about the stuff of my father or about the things of my father's? That is, all the things that belong to my father's, I have to be, father, I have to be about those things. That is the whole set or whole whole realm which belongs to the Father. Jesus is going to be involved with that realm. Verse 50, when they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. If you were here at Christmas Eve, you may remember that when the, the shepherds come and preach or tell the gospel beforehand to Mary and Joseph that there were these angels who said that this Christ child would deliver the people from their sins and that he would be the king, the Messiah of God. Here, Mary at that moment treasures those things in her heart. It says, all of them wondered, but Mary treasured. And here the exact same phrase is used by Luke. Luke is intending to show that this is an unveiling of the glory of God that causes Mary's heart to come alive. She treasures these things. This is not a light word. What is the point, of course, of Christ's act of obedience? This is wonderful that there's this parallelism between 1 Samuel 2 and Luke 2, and that's really nice. Uh, But what's the larger point behind the parallelism? Well, the larger point behind the parallelism concerns that which we've begun to talk about and are now going to focus and turn our attention to is how this is part of the gospel itself. The law of God is not just proscription, that is a prohibition or things which are written, commanded not to be done, but also it contains prescription. It contains both prohibitions and demands. So it says, do not murder. But likewise, it says, if you see your neighbor's ox go off into a ditch, you have to retrieve it. Negative and positive. 
In fact, in God's evaluation of righteousness, these are essentially linked. We think in terms of do not do and do, but when God understands these things, he sees them as extensions of one particular righteousness. That is the same righteousness, which is holy love for the Lord. Consider how the Ten Commandments begin in Deuteronomy 5. It says, uh, verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The beginning of the commandments start with the revelation of God as deliverer. And then the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Now here we could go commandment after commandment and show the negative and then the positive implications, but we're only going to look at one short summary as soon as it's given in the very next chapter, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, again, beginning with the identity of God, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The very next verse, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Again, just so you see it clearly, Deuteronomy 5, 7, you shall have no other gods before me. Do not have any gods. Chapter 6, verse 5, you shall love the Lord. Active love for the Lord, which includes heart, soul, mind, strength. All of your being is to be consumed with love for the Lord. Your life is to be a perennial offering of worship and devotion to Yahweh. And so the question immediately comes to us, how could we ever love the Lord with our whole heart? I was shopping for stuff yesterday. We're looking for a couch. And while shopping, not only did I act in grumpy ways, which were sinful and a lack of my sanctification, but I also saw stuff that I thought, man, that's awesome. I need that. I want that for the rest of my life. We are idol makers. How can we ever love the Lord with all of our heart? Sure, externally, you could maintain that, yeah, I don't have any idols set up in my house. But if you're really according to the truth of God, you have to take a look at what idols you have set up in your heart. Here God is saying to have no other gods before him by loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what it means to give a summary of the law of God. This is why when Jesus uh, summarizes the the law and the prophets, he says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are active obedience commands, and yet most of us, when we think of the law, we mostly think of negative commands, do not. And so the law has both a need for pardon and also a perfection. Paul says in Romans 7 that he cannot refrain from sinning. And then he says in the very next phrase that the very good which he wishes to do, which he has to do, he is not able to do it. And so we need a restoration in our hearts of what the law has. Therefore, because the law of God, which is the demands of God for every person, because it includes both prescriptions to do things and prohibitions against things, it therefore follows logically that the gospel of Christ has to answer both of these aspects. The gospel is not merely a clean slate to give you a second chance. Some of you are walking in frustration before God in your walk because you believe that your slate is clean. But now, if you just will it enough, you can become mature. Of course, Paul sees this in Galatians as a a refusal of the the gospel, as, as those who Christ is not helping or benefiting. Paul sees this as a repudiation or a denial of the gospel at a fundamental level. Therefore, the gospel is the forgiveness of sins and a reckoning or a considering or a dispensing of righteousness, which is not your own, but is Christ, which is given to you, to your account. 
If the gospel only included forgiveness of sins, think about this for a second, if the gospel only included a forgiveness of sins, then it would follow that we would live in fear concerning the active commands that God wishes for us to do. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, yes, I, God pardoned me from all the past times where I haven't done that, but I still have to do it. The gospel is not merely forgiveness of sins, but also an imputation of righteousness. Therefore, my current acceptance before God today, right now, in this moment, while I'm speaking this sentence, and the basis for my ongoing sanctification, both of those two things, my ability to stand before God right now, and my ongoing sanctification, which is done by the Holy Spirit, is on the basis of a righteousness that does not come from my works of the law, but rather because of the righteous, active obedience of Jesus Christ. This righteousness is not mine at all, but it is imputed to me. It's considered or it's reckoned or it's accounted to me. In God's summary of the table or the chart of accounts, he considers Christ's righteousness to apply to my account. And this is exactly the other half of the coin of the justification by faith, which we believe includes not just forgiveness, but also the reception of a righteousness which we could never perform verse, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.21, probably the most clear description in the New Testament in in its entirety of what the atonement accomplished for us, what God was doing through Christ in the cross. Verse 21, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. That in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This righteousness, of course, is not given to me in some abstract way, but it's given to me because I'm in Christ. Because I'm in Christ, when God sees me, he looks through the lens of Jesus Christ, if as it were. He considers Jesus' righteousness to be mine because of my union with him, which is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Christ is not merely our substitute with regard to pardon, but also our substitute as it pertains to the perfection which God demands. And far from this being a cessation of, or that is a removal of the individual Christian's desire to live righteously, this is rather a great and upholding truth, and which is a bastion or a foundation for our walking in freedom and loving the Lord. That is, this does not remove my need for progressive sanctification or ongoing sanctification, but rather it's the basis for it. Think about this. If you've ever taken a test in a subject that you know very well, you, you go into the test and you take the test and as soon as you're done with it, you know what grade you got. Now, of course, this analogy, this metaphor, this image may not make sense to some of you. Perhaps you never had that experience. Um, but consider if that doesn't apply to you, something that you know that you're very good at at your job. Now, all of a sudden you see that what you thought you were going to get right on the test, you actually totally bombed. But at the same time, the teacher or the, the instructor in this moment gives you all the answers, gives you a chance to study. And then from that point, you go in with a surety saying, you know you're going to get everything right. Why is it the case? Because the instructor has gone over with you all of the answers, and then you take the test again. 
Now, of course, this is a human analogy, and it's not, very, uh, not a very strong one. But the essential point is this, that Christ Jesus is the final answer for your inability to do the works of God. He is your solution and your righteousness. And by him, you see that and are transformed by his spirit such that he begins to show you how to live and how to walk. Christ's atoning sacrifice at the cross is not held at an isolated moment. That is, we believe Jesus Christ in his perfection must be a perfect and spotless lamb in order to be sacrificed. And it's important at Christmas to see how he was not just in one moment on the cross obedient, but he was at all times in his life. At first by the faith of his parents and then also by him adding to that faith immediately as a young man, and growing in righteousness that God considers the work at the cross to be the capstone or the final stroke in a lifelong series of successive, faithful, spirit-filled obediences to the Father. And in fact, God, through the mouth of Paul, actually considers this to be the one obedience. Seeing the necessity of his obedience, we can then rejoice in the progression of it. If you come to Luke 2.52 at Christmas and you'd say to yourself, well, what is it? What's the point of Jesus progressing in favor? That's just nice for him. But you don't see that it's an active, necessary thing for you, then you cannot rejoice in Luke 2.52. When Jesus is seen at this moment in his early life, the beginning of his life, what starts at Christmas and continues until his ministry is made public to the nation— then Luke 2.52 cannot be a source of joy. Luke uh, 2.51 and 52, and when he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And here's the final capstone for our reading today, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The gospel is not just a pardon from your sins, but rather also includes an imputation or a giving of a righteousness which is not yours, a perfect obedience to the law for you on your behalf, by which you are not merely pardoned by God, but also accepted by God. And this is the answer to our great need for acceptance as human beings, as those with fathers and mothers who have sinned in various ways in in a culture in which we have very uh, downplayed the importance of the family in a culture where we look to be accepted in every sphere, whether it's a group of friends or a job or a church or a society or a membership or a club. We do not have to look for the perfection in our own walk. And in fact, this is a great reliever of the fear which is still at work in our hearts, which the gospel comes to conquer. Jesus Christ on the cross as, uh, as it were, is showing the perfect love of the Father, not just by removing sins, but also removing a need for perfection in order so that by the Spirit of God, he would actually start to bring fruit in your life. That's what the gospel includes. That's what it shows at Christmas for Christ to increase in favor as a young man. That's why we celebrate the life of Christ, isn't it? It's why we celebrate the life of Christ in a year-long fashion. So my hope, my prayer for you today as we celebrate Christmas, uh, just as a minor point at the end here, Christmas goes on for a few more days. We don't just celebrate Christmas on one day and then stop. 
uh, is that over these next few days in Christmas that you would actually by faith rejoice in the human subjection that Christ had to his parents. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus's righteousness. We confess, Lord, that even at the very beginning of your law, where you say to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, God, we, we need not even move past our heart, let alone mind, strength, soul. God, we confess that we could never be perfect before you. And therefore, Lord, we heartily rejoice at the wonderful promise that you give that, that Christ's righteousness was given so that we might be in Christ the righteousness of God. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the wonderful acceptance that we have in you because of the work of Jesus, that we not only are forgiven from our sins, but also that our progression in life is sure because it is based upon your righteousness. We pray, Lord, that this would not be abused in our walk, but rather it would be the source of deep and lasting confidence that whenever we are at war with temptation, that we would know for certain that you are totally for us, that you are actively working in our lives to bring about righteousness, an actual righteousness that is according with the righteousness that we have by faith. Pray, God, that you would restore to us a deep love for the gospel and, and its wonderful implications for every moment of our lives. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.